when you're a child, you look at your parents and you say, I'm in a restaurant, why is the service so bad, you know? And then suddenly you start working in the kitchen and uh, only when you become a parent yourself, you really, you really understand that uh, becoming a parent is a little bit like somebody throwing you into a car and asking you to drive without you taking any lessons or having a license. This is a story about a pregnancy that doesn't end the way it should. About what happens when your baby is born too early to survive alone. It's about the parents, the babies, and the doctors who save them. It's about what happens when your life doesn't turn out quite the way you expected, and the untold story of what happens next. I'm Francesca Siebel. Welcome to Mothership. So, this is how it goes. You didn't get the birth you wanted. You didn't get the whole beginning you wanted. Your baby came early, a surprise, or maybe you had bonus time knowing it might happen to dread and anticipate it. Vicky had eight weeks of a troubled pregnancy before a scheduled caesarean at 28 weeks. My friend Kamisha still had chicken in her mouth when at 24 weeks she suddenly felt the urge to push and Ebony was born a minute later. Intensive care or special care for a few days or a week or a month or six months or six hours. But then you got to go home and everything was great, right? Happily ever after. It wasn't fun, but it's all behind you. And everyone wants it to be behind you. Friends and family love you and they want you to be okay. It's okay now, right? Everything turned out fine. It's perhaps too obvious to say, but it doesn't really work like that. Rates of postnatal depression among NICU mothers are more than double that of the normal population and a considerable number of reported symptoms actually meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It will come as no surprise that peer support, contact and connection with parents in similar circumstances, lessens the likelihood of either of these outcomes. But parents can hold it together through a hospital stay only to collapse once they are at home. When the adrenaline begins to ebb, when the smoke begins to dissipate, Sometimes only then does the extent of the psychic aftermath become clear. When my girls came home, I went into a state of high alert that lasted about six months. I was terrified of colds and flu. I barely left the house. I wouldn't wheel the buggy into a public space, not a supermarket or an empty cafe, even with the rain cover on. Before bringing Robin home, Vicky and Matt lifted up their floorboards to check for mold. Kamisha became an encyclopedic source of knowledge about humidity levels, and Catherine did something or other with a bag of charcoal, and also sometimes rewashed her laundry, just in case. Which is all to say, it's normal not to feel normal. Nothing about the experience of having a premature baby is normal, and we cannot and should not be expected to go home and pretend that nothing happened. And then there's the legacy for the babies. Of course, coming early can have lifelong consequences, some of them devastating, some of them trivial. Most babies will go home with little or nothing to betray their tough beginning. But wherever your baby falls on that very broad spectrum, you're likely to have an ongoing relationship with a hospital and a much more medicalised first few years than others around you. Someone who's written beautifully about the legacy of prematurity is New York journalist and writer Sarah Di Gregorio. I was sent a copy of Sarah's new book and I just inhaled it. The book is called Early, an intimate history of premature birth and what it teaches us about being human. Early is such a compassionate book. 
it's meticulously researched, but it's not just full of information, but wisdom as well. And she just gets it. Sarah's little girl, Mira, was born, well, early. Here's Sarah. I wanted to tell you, I read your book and I just feel so much kinship for you. And I, it's such a beautiful book. It's so beautiful. And I underlined so many passages. I'm so honored to talk to you. Oh, I'm so, well, ditto. I've done exactly the same. You should see the copy. I wish we were talking on video because I could show you my copy of your book, which basically like I underlined pretty, like 80% of it. <laughs> um, so tell me, um, tell me what happened with Mira. So my daughter Mira was born... Um, in 2014, um, we had had just a little abnormality in our 12-week blood work, um, and it indicated that perhaps the placenta wasn't functioning as it should. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were getting growth scans, but, you know, the message I got from the doctors mostly was, don't worry, don't worry, you know, this everything will probably be fine. Um, and of course I Googled it, which I should not <laughs> Right. The classic and, Google. Yes. Yes. And, um, and discovered that it is associated, this abnormality is associated with a lot of, um, bad pregnancy outcomes like prematurity and stillbirth and, um, intrauterine growth restriction, which is indeed what we, um, ended up with. Um, so, um, at the very beginning of our 28th week, the first day of our 28th week, I went in for a, um, a growth scan, um, and Mira had completely stopped growing. So she had fallen all the way off her growth, growth curve. Um, and this indicated that the placenta had stopped functioning to keep her alive. Essentially she was alive, wow. but the placenta obviously is very important for delivering nutrients and oxygen to the fetus. So we went straight to the hospital. I was very lucky to get two steroid shots. Um, and she was born later that week, um, in an emergency C-section and she weighed, um, 845 grams and she, um, was resuscitated in the delivery room. So she was put on a ventilator. Um, and we spent, um, two months in the NICU there. Um, we were very lucky. I was conscious all the time. I think you said something in your book about everyone is luckier than someone in the NICU. I was very conscious of that. Um, I could see that there were other babies who were having a much harder road. At the same time, it was very traumatic for us. Um, you know, I'm, as you know, it was... Um, it was very difficult to see your child um, at this stage in development when you're really not supposed to see them, that you really want to protect them and keep them, keep them safe and warm um, and in your body. And of course, um, upending all of that is very traumatic for everybody. But we were, again, very lucky, came home after two months. And now she is five years old. She goes to kindergarten um, and she's a delight. Wow. What a journey. I'm yeah. so struck. It's interesting that you um, referred to what I'd said because I was struck even before you mentioned it by how often you and all of us, I think, feel this need to reflexively return to we were so lucky, we were so lucky because, of course, you weren't lucky. And yeah. do you think there is a sort of, there's a, one feels an obligation to reassert that somehow with an awareness of, um, of kind of other people's stories? Because there was something else I thought was really important in your book um, that you 
that was so, again, I mean, that was so compassionate that you drew attention to, which was that a lot of the stories of prematurity that we hear are the more extreme ones. Um, and 80% of premature births actually occur much later, at 32 weeks or later, and almost all of those babies survive after probably a relatively straightforward inpatient stay. Um, and what you emphasized was that actually there's a particular set of difficulties for those parents also, which is that um, they're expected to feel even luckier maybe than we did, and that their experiences are therefore minimized. But actually, 24 hours in NICU is 24 hours too long. That's right. I, that's absolutely right. I, I think um, I think that that reflexive gratitude comes from a number of places. One of them is from a very, you know, as, as you know, a very true place. Um, if you are, in particular, in an open ward NICU, mm -hmm. as I think we both were, so meaning it's, it's a room with a bunch of incubators in it, um, and so you have so much enforced intimacy with other families' experience. Right, right. Um, and the baby who was next to us for the first two weeks did pass away. And so I can't wow. ever reflect on our experience without thinking about him. And of course. I, I know, or I imagine, because I, I wasn't able to keep in touch with that family, I imagine that they have this alternate timeline of their child, you know, turning mm -hmm. five, mm -hmm. like Mira did, and going to kindergarten. And so that sense of having, having, you know, having her alive and healthy is, I, I, the gratitude I have is so real. At the same time, yes, nobody wants to be <laughs> introduced to parenthood in intensive care. One day is too long. It can be very traumatic. Um, and I, um, I think, it, I mean, some of this makes me think of the way mothers are sort of expected to perform gratitude in general mm -hmm. um, and to sort of, um, you spoke to this a bit in your book too. I felt the same way. Um, you know, to be, to be a, a good girl, to sort of, to take notes and be, and be calm mm -hmm. and, and just very, you know sort of um have everything in a straight line and um and yeah not to be too messy yeah so <laughs> sort of the, that layer of of experiencing intensive care as you are also sort of being introduced to your role as a mother and everything that that brings um that's a that's 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 a that's a complicated um position to be in and I do think that that sort of I I really felt I was able to really feel for other mothers more than I could for myself sometimes, um, this sense of I wanted to be able to say to them, you know, it's okay that you that, that you didn't feel lucky. It's right. okay that you felt that this was pretty terrible because it was. Right. And maybe it's easier for you to give that permission and be gentler with other people than it is yeah. yourself. Yeah. You talked about in your book um, the importance of having um, – a more inclusive and realistic story about what it actually means to give birth and become a mother. Um, and it's so, it's so needed, I think. Um, and it's, it's sort of, you know, one of the, very much one of the reasons for this podcast. But um, why, why do you think it's important? Because I think that part of the sting of a premature birth is that many of us do have in our minds um, this sort of idealized birth. And I think everyone knows on some level that, you know, it doesn't always go exactly the way you plan. But um, 
you know, there's at least in in many of my friend circles, there's such an emphasis on make sure you put the baby skin to skin as soon as they're born, and mm-hmm. you know you want to latch on right away. And um, some of the emphasis on natural birth, which is meant to be empowering, and I think is great in lots of ways, it can make those of us who have needed every unnatural intervention <laughs> to get our babies out alive, it can make us feel like lesser as mothers. I think. Yeah. Um, You've made me laugh so much in your book when you were saying, you know, did you bottle feed or did you breastfeed? And it was like, no, actually, I tube fed. (laughs) Nasogastric tube was my feeding method of choice. (laughs) I mean, and who wants to say that? Can you imagine the faces in Brooklyn? You know, I just, (laughs) I, um, yeah, I wish that. And so I didn't, I felt shy somehow of even saying those things. Mm -hmm. And um, I wished that it wouldn't be such a shock to people. And maybe if we had more representation of what it means to try to have a baby who lives, you know, if we had more stories um, that I think people that some, you know, some some of these things would be a bit eased and people would feel freer to speak. Do you think it's because people are frightened that by talking about it, they might sort of somehow bring it upon themselves or people are scared to look straight directly at it or something yeah I think also there's um there is a sense that um you don't especially when you're talking to pregnant women you don't want to scare them or make them you know and you also don't want to infantilize women who are absolutely able to take in information and understand it (laughs) radical radical a radical thought like this witch bringing a hex, like I've been to the right. dark place and I... Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm I, not sure why we don't want to... I think we don't want to look too hard at it because it is so hard. And and um, and it's, it's frightening. It brings up a lot of questions that we struggle to answer. Yeah. There was such a beautiful line in your book when you talked about um, the reverberations of prematurity. That I mean, it, it really did make it sound like an earthquake um, and um, and you talk a little bit about PTSD and um, sort of the lack of support in many ways for parents coming home after an experience in hospital with their premature baby. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, I think um, when you, you're always, the goal of a NICU stay is to come home. In many ways, you know, being able to come home I mean, this is this is what you're always working towards. Mm-hmm. It's what you know. All yeah. of these, all of these hurdles you have to cross to be able to reach that day where you get to bring your baby home. Um, and I think that sometimes, therefore, it is underappreciated exactly how difficult that's going to be. Right. Um, and um, you spoke to this a bit as well, but you know. I had this sense of like, what do you mean? I won't know what her pulse ox is. You know, <laughs> <laughs> how will I know if she's, you know, how will I know if she's having a bradycardia? Well, you'll have to watch your baby. And I was right. like, um, right. Where's my SATS monitor? Where's the screen on this baby? Twenty-four-hour nurse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like it's an adjustment. Like it's like coming down from the most intense experience and suddenly you're at home with this, with a baby who you've been told that, you know, is they, they told us, Oh, just treat her like a normal baby. And I was like, what? I don't, 
Like, right. how do you, how, what's a normal baby? How do you treat a normal baby? I don't know. Um, so I, I had, I had some difficulty coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, a nurse had mentioned to me that the optimal temperature for SIDS prevention is 68 degrees. And so I bought a portable thermometer and I <laughs> walked around with it in our apartment trying to keep the temperature exactly at 68 degrees, which is impossible. Right, but that sounds to me totally normal. That was yeah. the way I conducted myself. <laughs> that and various other... I, I tried to just recreate a NICU in my living room. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because that's what you know, and that's what you're comfortable with. I was meant to be attempting to breastfeed my twins, although that was risible when they came home because they still had NG tubes and they were exhausted, and um, I weighed them every time I fed them. I weigh them before I fed them, and then I weigh them afterwards. And then I sent back. It's the only thing I've ever returned to Amazon was that baby weighing scale because I <laughs> calibrated it with a can of Coke, and it gave me six different readings when I did it, and I was outraged, and I sent it back. The whole, I mean, I was, I was crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really out of, out of my mind, totally out of my mind. I mean, really, um, I, I really relate to that. I, um, I used to – I. I had been told that swaddling was good and yet swaddling was also somehow bad because if you didn't do it exactly right, it could get up over her face. Right. Um, and so I just would swaddle her over and over and over and over again. And then I would take pictures of it and send it to a pediatrician friend and be like, is this a good swaddle? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I, I can I can relate to that. I was also I was trying to switch her from the bottle to the breast, and um, I had a lactation consultant come over, and she said, "Well, her muscle tone is too low to nurse directly. Mm-hmm. So what you'll need to do is." And then she wrote out this like series of of exercises that I was supposed to like manipulate Mira's mouth and oh, neck. Bless it, was you. Like a, bless. it was like if you went to a personal trainer and you wrote down like the reps that you need to do every day. So she wrote all of this stuff oh. down and then she said, and then after you do those exercises with her, then you'll attempt to breastfeed and then you will pump and then you will feed her that bottle. And I was like, <laughs> please was tell so- me you said to her, thank you very much. Goodbye. Here's the door. <laughs> I really did. I had this moment where I, I felt so much rage towards her. Like, I want to kill her. <laughs> um, and we never did learn how to nurse. But um, And I thought I wasn't up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say to families is you are up to it. Like, you you can do this. It's you, You'll adapt to whatever you need to adapt to, and you'll get your child what they need as best you can. And... It will get so much easier because you'll build an at-home relationship with your baby. You'll get used to it. And as you get used to it, everything will just get easier and everything will feel more normal. I really, I really didn't know how, I didn't have any under, I thought it was going to be hard like that for the rest of our lives. (laughs) Right. Well, because how would you know? How, I mean... How, if you have nothing else to compare it to, and this is one's only experience of motherhood, you think, right, well, this is my life now. Right. I was really struck by the fact that you were also born premature. Was that was that a comfort to you, kind of knowing that you turned out that you turned out kind of to have a happy and healthy life? Um, it was 
Yes, I guess I, it was a bit of a comfort in the sense that I felt like, you know, we, my daughter and I, and actually my mother, um, not that my mother was premature, but that my mother had been in my shoes, the sense that we had had this common experience, mm-hmm. all of us together. And um, I mean, obviously I have kinship with my mother and my daughter, but it gave me this sense of like being in it together and, mm-hmm. you know, we're all, we're all intact and... Um, I didn't, I didn't know much about my own early birth because my mother actually died when I was in college. And so in college, I didn't think to ask about the details of any of these things, which I now very much wish I had asked, but, um, but you don't until you become a mother, until one becomes a mother oneself, these things just don't even, I think it's almost impossible to even think of the question. Yes. Right. What would I have asked? Exactly. And of course, the second day I was in the NICU, it suddenly struck me that I had been in the NICU myself in an incubator and that my mother had been where I was. Um, And suddenly I had lots of questions that um, I wish I had asked. But, you know, yes, like, you know, I think for those of us whose stories are already written, there's always something you could go back and wish for. But the truth is, is that um, I think the most important thing is that they know that they are loved and that they're capable and their brains are so adaptable um and i you know those things are great but they it it certainly isn't it isn't everything and i actually think you know when they come home and and they're loved and they build a relationship with you i think that's everything right that's that's when that's what matters isn't it oh it's so it's so that's so beautiful to hear thank you so much Sarah for your wisdom and eloquence and insight and for teaching in a way that's just effortless. In one of the last chapters of early Sarah interviews other adults who themselves were born premature and it reminded me of a chance conversation that I'd had. I was about four months pregnant with my twins and interviewing Israeli writer Edgar Keret. If you haven't read Edgar, you really should. His short stories are dazzling, hilarious, devastating. But on this occasion, he was in London to promote his award-winning memoir, The Seven Good Years. The Seven Good Years is about having and being a son, and we sat in a Bloomsbury cafe and we talked a lot about parenthood. We discussed the way in which becoming a parent changes your perspective, changes your writing, changes your moral aspirations, and I was hanging on his every word because I was about to become a mother myself. And then he told me a story about his own birth that I would think about over and over after everything that happened. So I called Edgar. I think it will be very useful this dichotomy to say, me, the word, and and a a child is something that is between our inner self and the word. It's kind of in this kind of limbo. And specifically, if we talk about the family and the seven good years, there is something I think that every child kind of a... When he grows up, he looks at the, the way his parents raised him, and he realizes that they did stuff that was wrong or that kind of affected him, that scarred him or her. And then, uh, I don't know, they go to psychotherapy for many years, and they bitch about their parents. And uh, this is the process. But the moment that, they, that you become a parent yourself, you kind of, it's easier for you to identify with your parents because uh, if a... Uh, if when you're a child, you look at your parents and you say, I'm in a restaurant, why is the service so bad, you know? 
And then suddenly you start working in the kitchen and you see that sometimes some people of the staff don't come or sometimes, I don't know, something gets burned, gets burned, then you become much more empathic to, to the position of a, of a weakness and confusion that is associated with being a parent. Because when you look at your parents, they look omnipotent and it seems as if they did something wrong. It was just because they chose to. And uh, only when you become a parent yourself, you really, you really understand that uh, becoming a parent is a little bit like somebody throwing you into a car and asking you to drive without you taking any lessons or having a license. <laughs> and that is exactly how it feels, in fact, and also putting a blindfold on it. Yeah, I want to say something you know, about parenthood in general, is that, you know, I think that there are more people in, on this planet that are parents than, let's say, people that have PhDs or a black belt in karate. You know, it's very, very common to become a parent. And yet, even though it's so, it's so common, uh, it is probably the most uh, uh, responsible and obscure and complicated uh, assignment that we will have in this lifetime. And even though it's something that we, we should all agree that, you know, it's not as uh, simple to do properly, uh, you get no training for it. You know, you need a... Need uh, to pass a test to, to, to drive a scooter, but every person you know with the physical ability can become a parent. So, and tell me, because um, this was really what what stayed with me after we talked. Tell me about your own beginnings. Yeah, well, I, I was born premature on the six months of my mother's pregnancy. Uh, I'm the youngest of three, and because the the pregnancy got really, really complicated, and my mother was not healthy. She was a Holocaust survivor with a severe health problems. Then the doctor recommended that she that uh, she would have an abortion, and my mother refused. Actually, she told me she had that dream at, at night that she's going to see the the Philharmonic Orchestra. She really liked the classical music, so she goes to see the Philharmonic Orchestra in Tel Aviv, and, and when she goes, uh, she sees a sign, to, uh, today, piano solist will be Edgar Kellett. <laughs> wow. And uh, she said that in her dream, she, she saw me in that hall, and that I was very tall and blonde. <laughs> she probably, in her dream, she, she thought that she's going to give birth to Richard Kleiderman or something, <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and of uh, of course, after that, uh, she said to the doctors, I insist on uh, on having this child. And, you know, I said to her, if you have this child, then, then most, there is a good chance you're going to die and you're going to leave two orphans behind. And my mother said, oh, my husband is so good with children. He would manage, manage easily. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. And he insisted on, uh, on having me. And I was born in the cesarean operation. I... I've weighed less than a kilo, and uh, uh, when I was born, the doctor still uh, told her that most likely I'm going to die, and uh, my mother made me challenge, both because that was the name of the handsome, blonde, tall pianist in the Philharmonic Orchestra, but also because she said to me, as a baby, she said to me, you know, I call you challenge because it's your challenge to live, and uh, when I up a little and you know in elementary school and stuff there were many times when I would go to my mother and I would say uh, what would you want me to do to make you happy you know like would you want me to to take this course or I don't know make you uh, scramble egg and my mother would always have the same 
Uh, so she said, I wanted one thing from you when you were born, which was to stay alive. You were all square with me, you know, from now on, as much as I can, you can go and rob a bank. You know, you're a good kid. How do you think that's shaped who you became? I think I think there is, a, there is something in, in, in uh, the, the personal narrative that I had, and also the the narrative about my birth and being raised that my parents had, that it kind of gave me this feeling that uh, that if you want something really badly and if you believe in it, you're gonna make it happen, even if experts are gonna say to you that uh, it is possible. Know, so, so I think that all my life I've had this tendency of uh, getting into places and say I want to do that. And when people would say to me, "You can't do that," then for me I would say, "Ah, oh, just do, like those doctors who, gonna, who said that I'm going to die." Said, ah, okay. You know, so, so this idea of kind of being plunged into places that I, sh- I shouldn't be in was something that I that I felt all the time was kind of a previous destined by the story of my birth. When it comes to being born prematurely, there was just one more perspective I wanted. Two more perspectives, I should say. I'm Rafael Jäger. I'm Celeste. And and my mummy's book is called Mothership. What's it about? Us being born. You were born? And what happened when you were born? Um... I forgot. You forgot when you were very small. Mothership This Podcast, about stories that start before the beginning, presented by my mummy. I'm Francesca Siegel, and my book, Mothership, is in bookshops now. If you want to hear even more of my voice, it's even an audiobook. Mothership the Podcast is a Vintage Books production, presented by me, Francesca Siegel, and produced and edited by Lena Norms. Brainstorming and direction by Vicky Spencer. Music is To Clarity by Airy. Thank you for listening, and do come over and follow me on Instagram at Francesca Siegel and Vintage Books at Vintage Books to continue the conversation. I would really love to hear from you.